and welcome to episode 28 of the Tech Done Right podcast, Table XI's podcast about building better software, careers, companies, and communities. I'm Noel Rappin. After you listen to the episode, you can join the conversation with us. You can follow us on Twitter at tech underscore done underscore right, where you can get notifications of new episodes and tell us what you think. You can also leave comments about the episode on our website at techdoneright.io, where you can also see our full catalog of past episodes. We're really curious about what you like and don't like and what you'd like to hear us discuss in future episodes, so please let us know. Also, if you want to help other people find the show, leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts is a great way to do that. Thanks. Today on the show, we're talking to Nell Shemarel Harrington. Nell's a software development engineer at Chef who focuses on the Habitat open source product. We're going to talk about open source and the difference between how you run an open source project that people get paid for uh, versus a purely volunteer project. We'll have some tips for maintainers and potential contributors to open source, and Nell's going to talk about the open source projects she worked on during the 2016 campaign. Nell's a very thoughtful and community-minded developer, and I'm really glad that I got the chance to talk to her for the show. So here I am with Nell. Nell, would you like to introduce yourself to everybody? Hello, everyone. I'm Nell Shamrell Harrington. I'm a senior developer at Chef. I'm also CTO of Operation Code, which is a nonprofit dedicated to helping veterans get into software engineering careers. Both of those involve a ton of open source governance work, the really technical, deep down, nitty gritty of open source governance. And I'm looking forward to talking about that today. Cool. I, maybe I'll also, t- I'll also talk about um, working with veterans because we do a little bit of work with Code Platoon. Great. Uh, which is a boot camp uh, for veterans in Chicago. So tell me about your your history with open source. What projects have you worked on? What projects do you govern? There's been three big open source verticals, I guess, if you will, uh, in my development career. Uh, I mean, I started off like everyone does, uh, submitting documentation corrections. I think uh, it was a Ruby wrapper for MailChimp called Gibbon, which was my very first (laughs) open source uh, contribution. Sounds like you're familiar with it? Yes. Awesome. And then I'd say I didn't really get involved in the governance of open source until I moved to Chef. Part of my job was uh, not just coding on our open source projects, but also managing contributions from outside contributors, managing the roadmap, making sure everything flows, etc. The other two main verticals, one is Operation Code itself. And Operation Code runs, uh, we have several open source projects, uh, mainly geared around tools to help us communicate and also to manage the uh, general operation code website. And what's interesting about these ones is they're not so much products that are distributed, though people are welcome to distribute them and iterate on them if they want to, but they are teaching tools. All the veterans who come into Operation Code, our dream is to have everyone open a pull request within their first couple of weeks. I haven't quite achieved that dream yet, but we're working on it. And what's going to allow us to do that is having a really smooth onboarding process and ability for someone to get their contribution in, get it tested, and then have it uh, reviewed as soon as possible and merged in. So you're talking about open source governance here, and, and that covers a wide, wide range of stuff from you know small one-person maintainer projects to projects that come out of Chef that are managed within a company that, that's mm-hmm. providing open source. What are some of the issues that you see or, or the, the things that people don't realize about running an open source project like that? 
a lot of your time will be answering issues. And I don't just mean bug reports by that. I also mean feature requests. And the hardest part of a bug report often is uh, reproducing whatever error someone says they're seeing. I mean, I cannot tell you the amount of times I've had someone open up an issue and it just says this doesn't work, uh, which doesn't tell me a whole lot. So something we do with Test Kitchen is anytime someone opens up a GitHub issue, there's a template that autofills in the GitHub issue form that asks, you know, what operating system are you running this on? What versions of Ruby, all these other uh, different parts of it are you running? And that's to make it easier for the maintainers, whether it's just one maintainer looking at it or several, to really isolate where the issue is and be able to reproduce it. And then either code to fix themselves or guide whoever opened the issue through uh, fixing it. And sometimes it's their first uh, open source contribution. On that project, is that a team of people working as maintainers? Is that One person is the core maintainer of it. That's, I know him as Cheese Plus, Seth, whose last name is escaping (laughs) me at the moment. Um, But his Twitter handle is Cheese Plus. And then there's a few other maintainers who work at Chef. And then there's a couple who are in our community as well, who kind of rotate in and out. It's sort of a hybrid Chef and community project. It very much is. I'd say almost all of the Chef open source projects are hybrid community and internal Chef projects as well. From Chef's perspective, what's the advantage of having that kind of hybrid or what's the advantage of providing these tools as open source? And then what's the advantage of having sort of community governments of them? I mean, you can go into a commercial standpoint. We want to make it very easy for someone to try a Chef product first, be able to set it up on their own infrastructure as quickly as possible, uh, even start developing on it if they want to. And that is what gets their interest and brings them into the whole chef ecosystem, which is quite extensive. Uh, From a technical standpoint, having the entire community reviewing the code, uh, I mean, it can be painful sometimes, but it makes a much better product. And it really helps members of our community who want to add in a certain feature, usually a smaller feature. It's not on chef's roadmap, but what we do is we mark it as help wanted. And then anyone who's looking to get started in open source or wants to uh, contribute to one of the projects can add that feature in themselves if they wish. So it increases engagement, I'd say, as the the overall reason for having these open source projects, uh, not just on you know a marketing level, but also on a really technical engineer to engineer level. You know, it builds up sort of your ecosystem of the tooling ecosystem, I suppose, to reach people who might not, as you said, might not be on Chef's roadmap or tools that might not. Exactly. The free BSD adaptation for chef projects came from Aaron Kalen. Uh, we had never considered that someone might want to use some of them with FreeBSD, but he did the work to bring it in, and we've seen that ecosystem start to grow as a result. Is there ever any sort of conflict between the community's goals and chef's goals? There are. And that has been a source of pain in the past. Uh, One of the ways we've dealt with that is every week we have, it used to be an IRC, but it's in Slack now, a community meeting that anyone can come to. And what we discuss in that meetings are RFCs or reasons for changes. Now, this can be changes to chef products. It can be changes to the workflow, the way people use those products. We want to let the community have a say in what we do as much as possible. I really like it when large-scale open-source projects have a change management system in place. It's something that, as like a Rails developer, I really sense the lack of. 
mm-hmm. in, in Rails, which I think overall actually Rails engages with its community. The Rails core engages, which is uh, similarly a corporate community hybrid uh, that engages with its community pretty well, but changes just come. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, the best part about it is uh, I used to work on the supermarket project, which was a Rails application through Chef. And, you know, it happens with any project. The same questions tend to come up over and over again when you make a major decision every few months. Having an RFC where you can see it's all written down the discussion the community had and the reasons why we decided what we decided, it's so useful to be able to send that link to someone who has questions rather than having to rehash the entire thing again and again and again. It saves a lot of time and energy. It occurs to me that I've been assuming that everybody out there knows what Chef is, and that that's probably poor hosting on my part. Right. Well, it has nothing to do with food. Oh, we can start there. <laughs> no, although they use a lot of food metaphor in the... Uh... Yeah, I'm frequently asked by the TSA when I'm flying with my Chef sweatshirt, uh, what restaurant I work at. <laughs> so I'm sorry, Would you? can you want to briefly explain what Chef's role in the universe is? Sure. Chef is a product or project that allows you to create a template for what you want your infrastructure to look like, whether that's on AWS, DigitalOcean, Google Cloud, etc. And you can have one template that can roll out to thousands of servers, potentially, though most people I'd say use it in the hundreds. And then when you want to make a change to all of those servers, you can make that change in one place in the template. It's called a cookbook, and it will automatically propagate out to the entire fleet. We use it in the the single digits of servers. That's still good. (laughs) We we love anyone who uses it. Which is less than the hundreds. Yeah, it it, it lets you treat your your infrastructure as though it was code and you can check it in source control and and do all kinds of cool stuff. So with that, like what kinds of things, you said BSD support, what kinds of things are the offshoots of that that are part of the community? In offshoot product, we had this came originally through an acquisition, but it's it's very much a community driven project now. Is what's called Chef compliance, and what that is is it's like Chef in that it scans your infrastructure, but what it does is it scans them for vulnerabilities, like certain ports being open, and you can also create templates. We call them inspec profiles. Inspec is the testing language that we use for them, and that you can have the you know a standard template for HIPAA compliance. PCI compliance, whatever have you. And our community has really been taking a large role in creating lots of different templates for all sorts of security restrictions that are out there. Just to fill in, because I, I, I feel like I should, HIPAA is privacy requirements from healthcare. It's not That's you, correct. it's me, I should do it. PCI is security requirements for uh, various flavors of security requirements for payment gateways. Yep, yep. And then there's a, a alphabet soup of lots and lots of different acronyms for other requirements. Uh, yeah, gosh. <laughs> Having worked on a little bit of both of those, it's good to have a, a tool to offload some of that too. So, okay, with these projects, I'm sorry, you are man- you're, you're working on managing uh, some of these, some specific projects. Right. Uh, Habitat is the main one I work on right now. And in the projects that you are governing, is that a solo position that you're in? Are you working with a team of people who all uh, have various levels of control over the tool? What's that like on a day-to-day 
basis. I'm working with a team of people. Uh, thank goodness for uh, how big the Habitat project is, which is a lot like the Chef product, but it focuses on application automation. If you're interested, check out Habitat.sh. Uh, it's a little out of out of scope to explain the the entire thing right now. But yeah, there's a group of us who uh, do our work in the public. We have a public Slack. Uh, there's only one private channel in it, which for the most part we only use for uh, video call links because doing an open video call link on anything public is a recipe for disaster, which we found out before. Uh, and um, what we want to do is capture the discussions there, it, both in the product decisions Chef makes internally about Habitat. We have those in public as much as possible and the product decisions that are driven by our community of users and contributors. So the governance of this and the work on this is sort of your day-to-day -day job. It's true. Uh, I mean, I'd say the hardest part is keeping a consistent development environment that someone can get started up with very quickly. I mean, you have a little more leeway when you have people being paid to work on open source projects uh, to have there be some difficulty with the dev environment. But when you're trying to bring in volunteers from the community or from outside of Chef in our case, uh, they really need to have the ability to get coding and contributing as quickly as possible because volunteer engagement, I mean, it is fleeting and that's understandable. I mean, people have different priorities, you know, paid work, family, etc. But I'd say that's been the main challenge of almost every project I've worked on, which is making it so people can contribute very easily. Yeah, I think most people, at least coming, especially coming to a new project, are, are trying to solve their specific problem. That's true. So what kinds of things do you do to make that onboard experience easy for people who want to contribute, not just people who want to, so you said you had a template for people who want to contribute issues. What kinds of things do you do for people that want to contribute code? There's two big ones. With Habitat, we do have a Docker development environment that you can use for small changes. I used it when I was just first getting started out with Habitat. But if you get to the point you have to compile the entire Habitat code base, then you want to do it in a pure virtual machine. But the Docker environment is there for people to get started with really quickly. Another project I worked on, so I worked with an organization called Deb Progress, which was affiliated with the Hillary Clinton campaign back in 2016. And we were writing applications for use by the campaign. And we created vagrant environments uh, for anyone to get a fully working environment with all the required dependencies installed into it and be able to get into that coding and contributing as fast as possible. What kind of applications were you writing in that project? Two big ones. One was drive the vote. It was a way for anyone who needed a ride to the polls. It didn't matter who you were voting for. We didn't ask that. But anyone who needed it could request one in our web application, and it would match them up with a volunteer who had signed up earlier to drive, and then it would connect them via text message. Uh, so anyone who wanted to ride to the polls could get one. Uh, and then the other one was Hillary B&B, &B, uh, which was based off of a project called Bernie B&B &B by the Bernie Sanders campaign, basically allowing campaign volunteers to find uh, housing when they want to volunteer outside of their hometown or home state. What's really cool about that one was I found out in January, that one was forked and reused by the Women's March on Washington, oh, neat. which, yeah, that was the highlight of my open source career, seeing your work be used and be reused like that. It's, it's such a high. That's kind of the goal. So for something like that, like how do those projects get started? Uh, we had a core group of people involved in Dev Progress itself. So Dev Progress was an umbrella over several open source projects. And then they worked with people 
affiliated with the campaign proper to pitch ideas for projects and then decide which ones will return the most value in the shortest amount of time. Because working on a campaign, I tell people it's the tightest deadlines, tightest budgets, and highest stakes you'll ever work with. So we really had to be lean and emphasize on getting the most value very, very quickly, which is somewhat unusual for open source projects. Yeah, I was going to say that that is an unusual open source governance uh, situation because in most cases, an open source project is not working towards a deadline. In that case, is the open source primarily mean like we have a set group of contributors, but our code is public rather than like sort of taking in contributions? For the most part, the way it functioned was we had a set of core contributors where our code was public, but we welcomed contributions from anyone involved in it. Uh, we had to really police the GitHub issues for that one, though, because people on the internet get not nice. Uh, yeah, our people on the internet, yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, but the real beauty, as I mentioned, is because we open source those projects so early, uh, other people, other campaigns or movements or whoever have been able to fork them and adapt them. Yeah, where are those online? You can tell people, you can tell people where to find them if they're interested. Uh, head on over to github.com slash dev progress. That's D-E-V- P-R-O-G-R-E-S-S. And you'll be able to see several of the projects that we worked on. Did you interact with the internal IT team for the campaign at all, or was it basically a separate? It was pretty separate. There's some law reasons for that. Um, but we had some key people who would interface with key people on the campaign, but it was only one or two people. It wasn't the day-to-day volunteers too much. Yeah, I would guess that that's another situation where dealing with campaigns where you can very quickly and not realize that you're running up against legal issues. Right. Uh, voter data. Oh, my God. <laughs> the laws on that are different from state to state, uh, which makes it pretty difficult to deal with. Um, so we try to avoid taking actual voter data as much as possible. Yeah. I'm just I'm, I'm trying to imagine what that legal framework would be like based on my own experience with like financial issues. I, I imagine it's, it's a huge tangle. We had an attorney who was awesome. <laughs> And if your attorney tells you not to do something, just don't do it. Yeah, that that is really good developer advice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If your attorney says no, don't. Have an, have an attorney you trust. <laughs> exactly. So how long did you work on those projects? That one I worked on for about six months. I'm actually really interested in the intersection. I, I, I know a couple people who worked, and I haven't really had a chance to talk to them, but I know a couple people who've worked on the web side of the Clinton campaign. And I'm just... <laughs> really interested about this aspect of this as an open source project and, and sort of as a developer social movement, I guess. Where do you see that going, that kind of energy or developer momentum? I think it's going to continue. Uh, one of the main goals of open sourcing all our apps, and the Bernie Sanders campaign also did a great deal of open source work as well, is to have that be usable by other campaigns who may not have the big financial package to start with that would normally you'd uh, uh, you know, a campaign would have a whole bunch of money when they start, or hopefully do, hire lots of developers or pay for these really expensive software as a service systems to get started. Having the projects be open source and having anyone able to fork it, edit it, run it on whatever they want to run it on, I mean, it, it lowers the financial barrier for getting started, which I guess was one of the goals of the free software or open source and free software movement uh, in the beginning, now that I think about it. It's been a tremendous success in developer tools overall 
all. I, I talk about this some because I'm old and cranky, but when I became a developer, like you paid for programming languages and you paid for developer environments. I got started with C Sharp and Visual Studio 10 years ago. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I'm I'm older than that. But see, but even C sharp and stuff. Although they were technically closed source projects, they were I don't know. I guess they did have paid compilers. That is true. Yeah. <sighs> Professionally, my first professional experience was with uh, Lotus Notes and Cold Fusion, both of which were fairly expensive developer environments, like a four thousand dollar seat developer environment or something like that. And the existence of open source just as a thing, not only does it lower the barrier to allowing anybody to get started, but it gives you so much code <laughs> to look at. When I was learning to code as a kid uh, in basic, like source code was a rumor. Like you knew it existed for things, mm. but it was something you never actually got a chance to see. It was in the back of those programming magazines. Exactly. Yeah. That's, <laughs> I, I might learn to code from the back of programming magazines years old. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it, and it's pretty amazing that uh, all of this exists now right. in uh, what seems like defiance of the rules of economics in a delightful way. We're disrupting as the, the buzzword happy people like to say. <laughs> yeah, but disrupting, I don't know. It's, I mean, yes, it is. And, and, and certainly disruption was a lot of the goal of the, the, the people who started, you know, the, the people who started open source as a movement. It's disruption in a way that has brought people into the ecosystem and not disruption in a way that's trying to cut people out of an ecosystem, if that makes sense. Right. Uh, someone asked me recently, you know, do you think closed source or open source software is more secure? And my answer actually was open source. And the reason for that is I feel much more confident about the security of my code. I mean, obviously, I'm going to test it and use things like Chef Compliance and such to, to verify it. But if I have potentially hundreds of people looking at it, even if they're not using it or contributing to it, I'm much more confident that a weird vulnerability is going to be found rather than having one person working on it and just having it exist somewhere. Yeah, I mean, we can we see right now, you know, as we record this, the the meltdown and inspector bugs have just been announced, and you know, Linux seems to be patching itself much faster than than Windows, for example. Yeah, I think that that's true. Certainly true of a popular open source project. I think that sometimes like the one off open source projects. You know, when I was in my starting my career as a web developer, and I was trying, we we were on Cold Fusion, and I was trying to get us to move to. Python. We were on open for open. We were on ColdFusion and then Java, and I was trying to get us to move to Python. You should write a book about that. <laughs> uh, well, it's a very very short book because we never actually transitioned. And one of the reasons I worked at this very small web development, we would call it a web consulting firm now, but that term really was not something that they really thought of themselves as. And the owner of the company basically was was like, "Well, if we're using Python and something goes wrong, who do we sue?" Oh, that's a good point. Like, like, I mean, I guess I see the point, but that seems so, it seems so opposite from what I was hoping to get out of the developer tools I was using. Like having somebody to blame for my problems was not very high on my list of tool chain issues at the time. Yeah. A key point there is there's a difference between security and reliability and liability as in who's legally responsible. And that is a gray area with open source projects often, which makes a lot of enterprises very uncomfortable. Yeah. And I think, you know, I, even the legality of the open source licenses has never really been um, challenged. Yeah. And I don't think anyone wants to be the first. Yeah. <laughs> so. I don't, I don't, yeah. God, that doesn't sound like fun. 
but yeah, I like there's yeah, I don't I don't have a I don't have a long story there. Like I argued with them for a while about trying to get us to use Python and eventually like quit and got a new job. Huh? Uh, for a lot of reasons, not 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 just that. But seeing the 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 free tools, especially in the web development world, seeing the free tools coming and seeing the the purveyors of commercial tools being like utterly clueless as to what was going to happen to them very, very quickly was was an interesting time. Do you find being a sort of public open source developer to be more satisfying than being a, a for lack of a better word, closed source developer? Right. Uh, for me personally, yes. You have to be comfortable with your work being criticized publicly. I think that's the key difference between someone who's going to be a good open source developer versus a better closed source developer. But the thing is, my my coding techniques and such are only better as a result of all that public feedback and public criticism, as long as it's constructive criticism. <laughs> was it hard for you to get to a place where you were criticized, like where, where your code was being critiqued like that in public? Right before I started my job with Chef, which was the first time I'd be working on open source paid full time, uh, I put on Twitter that I was nervous because uh, if I got something wrong, the entire world would see that I got it wrong. And someone who I can't remember who it was, but uh, they immediately responded on Twitter with, well, yes, the entire world might see that something went wrong, but the entire world is also there to help. <laughs> and I, I've seen that play out again and again. And it's weird. It, it's not the traditional stereotypical coding job, but I do find it immensely rewarding. And when you, like I've done this a few times, sat down with someone and guided them through making their first open source contribution and seeing the way their eyes kind of light up when that, that the, once they get the Git commands in their fingers and then see their work get reviewed, merged in and be live somewhere on a project that, you know, hundreds or thousands of people might use. It's a wonderful feeling of human connection through technology and code. Yeah, I think that's it's really interesting how this has played out where even open source, which is this tremendously small d democratic coding resource that, that there's still this perceived gap for new developers. You're like, oh, I, I, I could never contribute. And it's great that you're helping people get over that because there's nothing magical necessarily about the difference between contributing to an open source and not contributing. Like there's no skill test that, that they make you pass. Right. When someone's looking to first get started, the advice I often give them is that, yes, there, there are a lot of jerks on the internet, as we mentioned before, uh, but a way to find a project that looks like it's more friendly toward people who are just starting is to take a look at the issues and see if any of them are marked with a label like beginner friendly or first contribution friendly or something like that, because that shows the current contributor or maintainers and contributors have at least thought about how they would bring a newer person into the project. And those are often much more supportive. If you open your pull request, it's not exactly what they're looking for, but they're willing to work with you to get it to what they're looking for. It's it's pretty phenomenal. Yeah, it's also worth looking at a couple of issue and pull request threads to see just like True. how combative the environment winds up getting. Right. I think that's a situation that's improved somewhat over the last couple of years as maintainers have become aware of what is helpful in getting new contributors, which is really what the project needs to do to sustain itself. Right. I think what's helped a lot with that is the emphasis on having a defined code of conduct for your project or your community or whatever it is, because it forces you I mean, like someone once said to me, well, code of conduct, jerks don't read code of conducts. And this is true. But I mean, 
it may not prevent something from happening, but a fire drill is not necessarily going to prevent a fire from happening in a building, but it makes sure you have a plan if something does. So it's forcing people to plan ahead. And if they do get a bad actor or someone who's just yeah, just being a jerk, they have a plan in place for dealing with it. It forces you to think about it beforehand so people can respond to it much quicker. Yeah, I think that's completely true. Like the, the when people say, you know, the, the bad actors aren't going to read the code of conduct, like that is taken to an ex- not all that far from saying an argument that we don't need laws because right. bad guys don't listen to laws. So what's something about open source governance that's harder than it looks? The biggest challenge is when a pull request comes in, deciding whether it adds value to the project and should be merged in or whether it does not add value to the project and figuring out how to say no to it in a way that's still supportive both to the person who submitted the pull request and respectful to the work they put into it. What are, you know, I see different projects have sort of different stances on this. Like some projects are very opinionated in terms of what the tool is trying to do and specifically what the tool is not trying to do. How do you feel about that in the context of the projects that you're working on? We do keep that in mind. When I worked on Supermarket, uh, the whole point of Supermarket, which was the chef project, was to be a community fostering tool that there was a public version and a private version that companies could use on their own infrastructure. And we had someone ask us to make it so you only could allow certain users to see certain things on it. And that, after much discussion, we decided, no, that that's not where we're, where we're going to take the project because the whole point of it is for it to be this community fostering and sharing tool. In your experience, like how do people respond to the, I'm sorry, this is not what this tool is for kind of message? Uh, well, in one instance, which was a negative instance, someone threatened to fork our code, which, I mean, they're entitled to do, and set up their own version of Supermarket and then tell people to use theirs and not ours. But we, we talked them down. <laughs> I will say there was, a, there was a time when that was like the nuclear bomb of source projects. Right. It would be the death of a project if somebody uh, forked it. And I, I feel like it's not – I feel like the ecosystem has gotten big enough now that that's not as big a deal as it used to be. Very much so. The hardest is when I receive a pull request and it's clear someone's put a ton of work into it, but they didn't ask me or the other maintainers about it first. And it's ultimately not something we want to add to the project or not the direction we want it to go in. So a really good tip there is to ask the maintainers before you put in a large amount of work into a a project. What I consider a large amount of work to put into a project uh, without asking is 100 lines of non-test code. If you have more than 100 lines of non-test code, you really should talk to the maintainers first just to make sure it fits with uh, where where they're taking the project. Right. Yeah. And again, different projects have a lot of different ways to respond to that. Some projects really do just want functionality and don't have the kind of boundaries that that other projects do. Or sometimes, you know, it'll be something that you've legitimately not thought of that you don't even realize you need until somebody comes by and asks and says, hey, I'm doing this. For some projects, when you receive a code review, there's a lot of opinions about how something should be done, um, which is, I mean, it's good to discuss that at least. But for me, at least when I'm reviewing a pull request, and it is something that provides value to the project, the two big things I'm looking for is, you know, one, is the code maintainable? 
And two, is there anything unsafe in it? And by unsafe, I mean not just security issues, but that would make it more difficult for someone else to take this code and uh, work with it. And I mean, if it checks out on both of those questions, I often don't go too deep into how I would do something differently. Mm-hmm. I respect that person's work. If it doesn't violate the style guides or whatever, which every project should have, by the way. Um, you should have a style guide if for no other reason than it prevents you from arguing over style. It's ridiculous. Yeah. And you know, if they do it a little differently than me, but there's no safety problems with it and it doesn't violate anything, that that's okay. That's, that's the nature of an open source project. People are going to do things differently than I do, but if it still works and doesn't provide any danger, I mean, it, it's, I, I'm fine merging that in. Yeah, it's it's worth it to to remember that it's that at its best, you know, open source projects like this are community projects. Mm-hmm. You're a curator and not an owner. Is that, is that a good way to put it? That is. And uh, speaking of uh, style guides or automated checks, uh, my favorite thing for an open source project to do is have automated uh, tests that get run automatically. So with Supermarket, we had it hooked up to Travis CI. So as soon as anyone opened a pull request, it would automatically run all the tests on that pull request uh, using Travis CI and immediately return back whether they'd passed or failed, which meant whoever was opening the pull request before a maintainer even saw it could get some feedback as to the quality of the pull request and be able to fix it really, really quickly. So what's one thing that a contributor can do uh, or what common mistake you see contributors make and what's one thing that you think a maintainer can do to improve the way that their project runs? The number one mistake I see is not reading the contributing guide. But the m- number one mistake I think maintainers make is not making the contributing guide really, really visible. Like that's something I'll put at the top of the readme or pretty darn close to the top of the readme for anyone who comes to my project's uh, place on GitHub. Yeah. And, and the kinds of things in that, that includes the style guide and it includes right. um, the kind of testing that you're looking for and, and the kind of documentation that you're expecting and that kind of the, those, those sort of issues. And any special needs of the project itself, like they might uh, handle things differently from other projects uh, and putting in the contributing guide, I think is the the way to ensure the least amount of friction uh, when someone wants to contribute. Yeah. What what versions of languages and, and combinations you need to support, that, that kind of stuff. Even on small projects, even on very small projects, it's worth having something like that just to think about. Like, you know, what, what does this project officially support and what do we not support? Again, like, because that also, like... Certain bug combinations, you can say, hey, look, we don't support that. <laughs> well, we're not going to fix it. Right. The most challenging bugs are when, I guess the most challenging ones to communicate about is when someone opens a bug and it's not an issue with my project, but it's an issue with an upstream project of my project. I see yeah. that happen a lot. Yeah. And the good way to handle that is to you know convey to the person to open the issue. All right, this is an issue with uh, this upstream project. Here's their. Well, I mean, make sure you report it to the upstream project. Number one and number two. Here's their current status. I'll keep you updated. So once a day or so, I'll check the upstream project, see if the problem has been fixed, and then convey that to whoever opened the issue. I mean, the the key thing to remember is. Uh, I mean, some people, you'll see some projects just close those issues kind of saying, not my problem. But if the problem manifests in your project, it is your problem, uh, even if it's something that's upstream to your project. People are going to look at your project for uh, guidance on what to do or whether it's a problem. There was a really good talk at RubyConf this year from Sam Fippen about a RSpec bug that was actually a Rails bug and how 
our spec handles that from a contribution and then uh, from a maintainer standpoint. That's awesome. I will definitely have to go and uh, check that video out. So one of the things about the projects that you're working on for Chef is that it is part of your day job. You're, you're paid to do it. Like, Do you have any things that you might want to suggest for open source maintainers who are not being paid for it, you know, in terms of how to keep those projects sustainable in those constructions? Sustainability is the key word there. Before I worked at Chef, this was a few jobs ago. I was at one point, you know, doing my day job, doing a lot of open source stuff on top of it, and then doing a lot of speaking on top of that. And I kept pushing, pushing, pushing. And what happened was uh, my wife came into the bathroom one morning to find me collapsed on the floor. And I was having symptoms of a heart attack. Now, it wasn't actually a physical heart attack. She did take me to the doctor and we got it checked out, but it was a panic attack that manifested like a heart attack. And when I told some people about this, I found out that kind of reaction is pretty common. Uh, I would say maybe not common, but it's not that unusual in the technical world because we are under such high pressure, not only in our own jobs, but to be doing side projects, to be doing things on top of our current day jobs. I've certainly heard other maintainers talk about that kind of level of stress in their maintenance jobs. And what's helped me with that is, for me, it's more intuitive to budget money than it is to budget time. I'm not sure exactly why. Maybe it's my upbringing, but it just it's easier for me to think about the value of things in terms of dollars. So I think about what rate I would charge someone if I were being paid to do whatever the project project is, and then I just keep that value in mind. So let's say I would charge $100 an hour. If I give eight hours to a project in a week, well, that's that's about $800 worth of time that I've given to this project. And it forces me to think through budgeting, you know, is it worth this dollar amount spending it here versus spending it here? And it made it a little easier for me, at least. Yeah, I hope you're not having panic attacks. That sounds terrible. No, I'm doing much better please, now. Please, <laughs> Thank you. Please don't do that. Yeah. It was a wake-up call, uh, and my spouse basically sat me down that night and said, you need to do something different. It's the joy of having a, a strong, supportive spouse is to tell you when you're being stupid, basically. Yeah, yeah that, sounds, that sounds very helpful. Well, it's been really great to get a chance to talk to you, Nell. I'm really glad we got a chance to sit down and talk about this. Where can people reach you online and learn more about the things that you're working on? Sure. Uh, you can check me out at nellshamrell.com, which has a lot of the projects I work on and links to a video from different talks I've done, including the one how Noel and I met was I quoted him, I think it was Ancient City Ruby, has nothing to do with Russia. And um, it was Test Driven Development, a love story. And then you can find me on Twitter at, at Nell Shamrell, and I'm pretty active on there. Nell was the first person, I believe, to quote me to me. Or quote, no, no, actually, that, that, that one you quoted me and somebody told me about it. That's right. Yeah. I think it was a Twitter. And then Nell uh, also became a, a fantastic uh, reviewer of Rails test prescriptions. Okay? Tremendously useful. Thank you. And you should also check out Nell recently did a talk at Windy City Rails that was only slightly derailed by a terrifying AV problem <laughs> that Nell handled with, with uh, style and grace. So you should check that Thank out. Thank you. The funny thing is, someone had asked me the night before, what is your biggest fear as a speaker? And I said, the projector going out. And then that's exactly what happened. So. <laughs> Well, it's a good thing you didn't say, like, Godzilla smashing the, the, the venue. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> terrifying. Uh, Godzilla plus Chicago does sound terrifying. Thanks for being on the show, Nell. Thank you so much for having me, and uh, everyone have a wonderful new year. 
Tech Done Right is a production of TableXI and is hosted by me, Noel Rappin. I'm at Noel Rapp on Twitter, and TableXI is at TableXI. The podcast is edited by Mandy Moore. You can reach her on Twitter at the Ruby Rap. Tech Done Right can be found at techdoneright.io or wherever you get your podcasts. You can send us feedback or ideas on Twitter at tech underscore done underscore right. TableXI is a UX design and software development company in Chicago with a 15-year history of building websites, mobile applications, and custom digital experiences for everyone from startups to storied brands. Find us at TableXI.com where you can learn more about working with us or working for us. We have several positions open as I record this. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with the next episode of Tech.